And at that meeting, the, the head meat buyer for Walmart was there. And he was telling us, you know, look, we're, we're the nation's largest meat buyer. And we want to keep buying meat and selling meat. And he said, I got a challenge for all of you. And he held up this styrofoam plate. And he said, this is the package that we're going to put 10 ounce ribeyes in. And the challenge for you guys is to figure out how to make every animal produce two 10 ounce ribeyes that will fit on this package. And, uh, you know, right minds in the room and you could see the sparks of creativity. How are we going to modify genetics? How are we going to modify feed? And I might have been the only guy in the room that went, hold on a second. Out of all the complexity of the whole production chain, you think that we ought to change the most complex component, the natural component, to fit a fucking styrofoam plate. <laughs> and I think that, that that illustrates how animals were changed. They were changed no longer to fit their environment and to be in touch with the natural ecosystem they're involved in, to fit onto some plate, conceptualized plate. And, and, and that's the change. Welcome to Where Hope Grows, a podcast curated to tell the inspiring stories of land stewards, ranchers, and farmers who are on the front lines of the regenerative revolution. Interweaved with wisdom inspired by Mother Nature, these journeys are testaments to her capacity for healing ourselves, our agricultural systems, and our planet. This is Where Hope Grows. Hey, everyone. This is Taylor Collins, and you are listening to Where Hope Grows. This podcast is brought to life by the support of Force of Nature, Rome Ranch, and of course, the grace and beauty of Mother Nature. Greetings, champions. This episode is a testament to the power of collective capacity. Each of my guests were drawn together to accomplish something bigger and better than what could be accomplished alone. And I've always believed that the right people and the right opportunities appear in our lives with divine purpose. Nothing is by accident. Nothing is random. This intentionality can be seen in Mother Nature's design, and I observe it every time I walk through a pasture out here at Rome Ranch. Each plant, every bird, every single insect is serving a role. Nothing is there in that pasture by accident. This is nature's collaborative design to elevate each individual and thereby elevate the entire system. And as in nature, we too can harmonize in a collective capacity when we come together and use our individual strengths to lift each other up. The people on this episode have come into my life and each other's lives to do just that to reimagine our agricultural system, to shatter the self-limiting beliefs that often hold us down, to unite and ignite into something bigger and more beautiful than one can imagine. This is a story about how a rancher, a CEO of a consumer packaged goods brand, and an executive chef collaborated to drive massive changes in the restoration of hundreds of thousands of acres of land while nourishing consumers, and while elevating the public consciousness of regenerative agriculture. 
Now, the following episode is a live recording from our annual What Good Shall I Do conference. That conference is supported by Force of Nature. It takes place every year out on the regenerating pastures of Rome Ranch. And I just felt like this panel had to happen. This story had to be celebrated because it was a living embodiment of the power of this collective capacity, this collective focus that when orchestrated correctly can elevate an entire system. This story comes together with Matt Schweitzer, who is the chief revenue officer at HopDotty. He's also a culinary mastermind. If you're not familiar with HopDotty, it's a burger chain that has 50 locations throughout the Southwest in over nine states. It's by far my favorite place to get a burger. Not only is Matt a complete force of nature in the kitchen, but the dude is fucking beast mode. He can deadlift over 700 pounds. He's used to doing hard work and ready to do heavy lifting, both figuratively and metaphorically. So Matt comes out to the ranch to do a guided axis deer hunt with his wife, who's also named Taylor. And at the end of the hunt, Matt's like, hey, I, I don't think this is possible, but I'd really like to consider some opportunity to purchase bison, some, some regenerative bison from lands that are being grazed in a holistic way. And I want to scale that. And I want to put that in my restaurants. I want to service my community and my consumers. I want to support this system. But I doubt Rome Ranch can do that. So this is where Robbie Sampson comes into the equation. Robbie is the CEO. He's the co-founder alongside myself and my wife, Katie Collins, to Force of Nature. I come to Robbie and I say, Robbie, this guy, Matt Schweitzer, he's the real fucking deal. This guy is ready to reimagine the system. I don't care what it takes. We have to figure out how to source enough regenerative bison where we can start selling and supporting and collaborating with Hop Dottie. Now, this is where Bob Lee Wesley enters the equation. Robbie calls Bob. Bob is the head of Turner Ranches. These guys are managing more bison than anyone else in the world. I think their herd size is around 50,000 animals. Bob alone works on a ranch that's 50,000 acres. It's the ranch where the movie Dances with Wolves was filmed. I mean, it's pretty fucking epic. So Robbie tells Bob about this opportunity to double down on our commitment to regenerative agriculture. Turner Ranches is already really interested. They're already exploring this opportunity. They're changing their management practices on much of the land that they manage, which by the way is over a million acres. And where there's a will, there's a way. That collective focus was unstoppable. Within a few months, HopDotty launched the Buffalo Bill. This is a culinary experience that will elevate what you think of a burger and take that 10 times to the next level. It's sourced from force of nature, regenerative grass-fed bison, which many of the bison for this burger come from Bob Wesley and Turner Ranches. It's just an amazing story. And so here we go. Let's go live from the main stage of our annual What Good Shall I Do conference. Beautiful. I'm going to start this off. So if any of you guys are ever on a panel or on stage, the worst spot to sit is next to the moderator because you always get the first question. So you don't have any time to think about the answer. And I feel for Matt, so I'm not going to do that. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna save his ass. We're gonna go right to Robbie. Um, Thanks, pal. All right. So, how did we get to this industrialized, commoditized meat space, um, and and what are the the consequences of that? Yeah, you know, I think I think truly, I I don't think that there are necessarily villains in this story. You know, I, I think I think it was with the best of intentions that. You know, we tried to celebrate the capacity for human ingenuity and innovation and understanding to create solutions to problems that we perceived, right? And drive for increased yield and increased productivity and find ways, in some ways, to sustain things that were unnatural, like growing populations of people and more centralized CAFO type cities and things like that. But again, I'd, I'd, I'd say best of intentions. And I think where the where this story starts to really go sour is where we started to realize the unintended consequences of those decisions. Again, great intentions and meaningfulness in terms of of why we started down this path, but it's the fact that as we've been able to realize just how devastating some of these actions are and the externalities association associating with them are, we haven't had the confidence or the um, integrity. As, a, as, as leaders and as a society to call attention to that and to hold ourselves accountable to a standard to be better and to pull back and to, and to divert that, that path, right? And I think for better or worse, we, we, we ended, well, for worse, we ended up doubling down in many circumstances on the very thing um, that, that got us here. You can look at the, you know, this, this plant-based meat alternative movement, right? I mean, we, I'm not going to go on my diatribe on that, but again, truly the very things that some of these alternatives are calling attention to and saying there's solutions for. They are literally just the the repeating the the um, replication of the, the the status quo and those very same things. And um, the reality is, we all, as I as I as I kicked off to today uh, with, we all now have the 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 opportunity, the the obligation to stand up and say, okay, we're no longer willing to tolerate this. Right? It's 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 been proven to be inevitable that left to its own devices that, you know, we're on this path and this trajectory. I always say we're, we're, we're racing towards a cliff as a global society. Um, we talk about all the civilizations through time that have risen and collapsed due to resource degradation and the, the myriad of issues that that leads to. And as the first time in, in our history, we're a global society. So um, help us uh, not just slow down, but uh, change course. Bob, you work with animals. You've been a rancher your whole life. Um, how have you seen livestock being impacted by this industrialized system? Yeah. So I want to tell you a story. Back in the 90s, I was in college and I got invited to sit in on this meeting. A bunch of young, bright, creative minds trying to solve the problems in agriculture. And at that meeting, the, the head meat buyer for Walmart was there. And he was telling us, you know, look, we're, we're the nation's largest meat buyer and we, we want to keep buying meat and selling meat. And he said, I got a challenge for all of you. And he held up this styrofoam plate and he said, this is the package that we're going to put 10 ounce ribeyes in. And the challenge for you guys is to figure out how to make every animal produce two 10 ounce ribeyes that will fit on this package. And, uh, you know, Bright minds in the room, and you could see the sparks of creativity. How are we going to modify genetics? How are we going to modify feed? 
And I might have been the only guy in the room that went, hold on a second. Out of all the complexity of the whole production chain, you think that we ought to change the most complex component, the natural component, to fit a fucking styrofoam plate. <laughs> and I think that, that that illustrates how animals were changed. They were changed no longer to fit their environment and to be in touch with the natural ecosystem they're involved in, to fit onto some plate, conceptualized plate. And, and, and that's the change. The, the animals that we raise in, in the industrial agricultural sector, they don't fit into the environment that we're trying to raise them in. And that's what causes 90% of the issues we have. Matt, we're all taking turns talking about industrial agriculture. Before we talk about the solution, of course, we have to paint the realistic picture of today. Um, you serve a lot of consumers. You've been a chef your entire life. How have you seen the industrialization of meat impact consumers through that time? Uh, I think kind of what Robbie was talking about, and I mean, I don't want to go down like a huge diatribe. I think it's kind of been discussed earlier, but um, I think the, the whole plant-based kind of push has kind of been a newer, um, new-ish type thing that I, I, I think meat has been demonized a little bit. Um, I think that the trends that I think we've seen or that I've seen in the industry, um, I don't think it was, I think that caring about where your food came from and caring about the quality of it, um, was kind of something that was seen as, you know, uh, kind of uppity or elitist. Then I think kind of, there was a, a, bit, a bit of a plant-based movement. And now I think that what we're seeing a little bit in, in our space is, um, you know, millennials, the largest consumer group that we serve, um, really do care about what they eat, where it comes from. Um, they really want to make sure that they're voting with their dollars and they want to make sure that um, they're eating food that both nourishes them, but also is like serving a greater purpose. So I think there's been a, a, a healthy life cycle probably moving in the right direction. Um, and it's it's been really interesting to, to see and to be a part of. Robbie, back at you. Um, how have consumers historically been deceived uh, intentionally blinders put on them to disconnect them from the food system and what specifically is force of nature and other regenerative meat producers doing to change that dialogue? These are deep questions, Taylor. <laughs> Katie's going to mute my mic, mic before I finish. You know, I, I think one of the biggest deceptions is that, um, that we have this illusion of choice in the system. Right. I mean, the reality is we are all servants to or historically have been servants to the food that these large, hyper efficient industrial business businesses have allowed us access to. And they've controlled some of the messaging, again, through misinformation and deceit and bad practices and truly just through veiling and shielding us from seeing the reality and the truth behind it. You know, but, but we're part of it. We're all we're all complicit in it. Um, and, and, and that's the, the role that we play um, if we just continue to comply and deny that. We continue to invest in that system um, that uses us and, 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 and puts us in this, you know, we are slaves to it, we are cogs in the machine. And I think what we are trying to do to the second part of the question at Force of Nature is empower um, consumers. I think one of the most awesome things that, that we um, need to un uncover and discover within ourselves is that we wield all of the power. 
it's easy and we've seen it through some things recently to control and, and, and hold down populations of people. But we've also seen historically through time that when populations rise up and take a stand, that there's no greater force within our species and within our population. And that's where we are right now. We have this opportunity to wield this awesome weapon to change the course, to change our circumstances, the circumstances of our society, the land, the animals, so on and so forth. And so with Force of Nature, we're trying to, again, create awareness to these issues and create access. So there's a call to action for consumers to be able to do just that. Bob, for some perspective, how many bison does Turner Enterprise manage as a whole? Yeah, so it, you know, it fluctuates depending on current conditions, but right around 50,000 head, and that's across about just shy of 2 million acres in the West. Okay, so this is this is big time, people. There's only 500,000 bison in North America? Give yeah, 450 to 500,000. Okay, so this is a large shareholder, a large co-creator, collaborator with the native large ruminant animal of North America. Beautiful species. Um, what was the catalyst for change from you guys transitioning from a kind of more conventional grain-fed model, grain-finished model, to more of a, a grass-fed regenerative model? How did, how did that happen and when did that happen? Sure. Well, I can kind of rearrange that question. I'll just tell you the, you know, the story of Ted. T Ted got into raising bison. Ted's primary goal was to restore functioning native landscapes on large scale. And bison, you know, as a, as a natural component to that ecosystem, he thought that was important. But Ted being, you know, preeminent businessman and visionary realized that it can't be sustainable in the long term unless it's, it's economically viable. And so that bison was that economic engine for it. Um, in a way, I think, Ted, it, it wasn't the terminology of the time, but Ted's always wanted to be regenerative. He wants to regenerate the natural systems that we're in. Um, there was never an intent to get into industrialized grain finished production of bison, but we needed to sell bison and bison meat. And in the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s, uh, you know, the bison meat industry was growing it was growing was growing rapidly and there was high de demand and good prices and being such a young industry that didn't have a, a real well-developed supply chain um, when that demand hit we ran out of supply and so we ramped up supply and by the time we finally were able to get meat and i'm talking as an industry as a whole by the time we were able to get meat back on the shelves the the demand had quit and the, I mean, producers were, they couldn't give away bison. There was no way to, there was no market for it. And so that's when Ted got into grain finishing bison. We worked with a couple partners uh, in the packing side and the, uh, the meat side that said, look, if we're going to get, we got to stabilize this thing. So it's not just whipping back and forth. We need to have a consistent supply of bison available to consumers to build that demand back up. And the only way we could do that, you know, we raise our bison in a natural system and we don't try to force anything unnatural upon them. So they only breed at a certain time of year. They only, 
They only make weight and get big enough at a certain time of year. So in order to give that consistent supply throughout the year, um, it really required putting them in a feedlot so that we could have that. The other problem was, and, and I don't know whose decision this was, um, bison being niche and special, we want it to be fresh, never frozen. And man, the only way we could do that was, was through a feedlot. And so that's how we started into the feedlot business. So the catalyst to get back into, to get into regenerative, it, it really wasn't. It was just, we finally saw this opportunity. You know what? The market has matured to the point where consumers are wanting this product and they're, they're willing to take it in different forms. And there is getting to be a public knowledge about the, the nutritional quality of food and the health aspect of the food and of bison that, that the consumer's mature enough now to, to buy from different sources. It doesn't have to be a fresh product off of Whole Foods shelf. And then we get partners in the industry like Force of Nature coming in and saying, you know, we want to tell this story and we want to change how consumers perceive bison, bison meat and other proteins. And so it was just a culmination of all those factors coming together that we could finally take a deep breath and say, ah, we can get back to what we want it to do to start with and we can do it sustainably. Holy shit. Did you guys hear that? You all created that change. There was a market signal from you guys demanding grass-fed, demanding regenerative, and the largest bison producer in the world responded to that. And so that's that power that each and every one of you yield. It's incredible. Uh, Matt, how many regenerative bison burgers do you guys serve? I don't know. What do you want to say? A month, a year, a day? I think annually we sell. Um, Marshall probably knows the number better than me. I think it's I think it's in the neighborhood of 300,000 pounds of uh, grass fed bison. I think we sell uh, I know we sell about 3 million pounds of uh, beef a year. So kind of all ruminant protein together. We're going to be at the by the end of this year, we'll hopefully be approaching like, you know, about 5 million pounds, not just a bison. But um, yeah, we're we are. Uh, I was having a meeting with uh, guys at Force of Nature uh, recently, and we when we rolled out um, our, our bison program, the bison burger has been on the menu since the Genesis of hop Dottie, And it's always been kind of a fan favorite. And, uh, we saw it as an opportunity to kind of bring on, um, bring on a new partnership, um, that we were really proud of. Um, and we were willing to, uh, we, we stood behind the message so much. We want to take a chance. Hop Dottie's always been kind of on the cutting edge of what, whether it's culinary creativity and ingenuity sourcing. Um, and a little bit of that had kind of run flat and we were a, a little bit kind of stalled out and kind of some of the boundaries that we were willing to push and that type of thing. So we brought on the partnership um, and it's, it's gone over amazingly well. We've seen a, a pretty sizable uptick in the sales of the product. Um, but uh, we're, we're hoping to, uh, I was having a meeting with these guys, like I was saying, and we're, we're hoping to, we want to be the largest on-premise um, retail food service customer um, of regenerative proteins like in the country. Um, so that's kind of like, that's our goal. That's part of like our CSG and our, our, our corporate responsibility that we're kind of shooting for, for the end of next year. Uh, so Matt is just a culinary God. He is the man who creates these outrageously delicious burgers at Hop Dottie. Um, and so kind of like putting on your culinary hat, do you notice a difference between regeneratively sourced grass finished ruminant animals and then industrial commodity finished animals? 
Yeah, absolutely. And at Hopdotty, we we take a little different approach to a lot of the products and the things that we bring on um, in that if we can sell it to our team members, we know that we can sell it to our guests. So if our team members get really get behind it, one, we know that they're going to be proud of it and they're going to push it. And then they're oftentimes our harshest critics. So we know if it passes their test, then it's going to go on. And I remember the first delivery that we got in um, of the of the, our initial product. And I got a call from our one of our store managers like, hey, this product's wrong. I was like, what's wrong with it? They're like, it's really, really red. I was like, oh yeah, I'm sorry about that. I'll be right down. We'll go through it. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I mean, there's there's a noticeable taste, flavor, appearance, profile uh, difference. Um, what we were using prior was a product that, um, you know, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a bad product. It was just wasn't a product that we were proud of. We weren't going to menu it. We weren't going to talk about it um, as much. And, uh, but there's, there's definitely like a, a flavor profile difference. I think there's a richness, a boldness, kind of a robust nature to it. I think it's a little bit denser, meaty flavor. I think sometimes it can come off a little bit sweet because of the grass. I think that like what you guys were talking about earlier about kind of like education and knowledge and what people are eating. And I think that this room is so unique, almost in a, in a strange way that this is an educated room. And I think everybody in here should recognize that you guys don't uh, this room doesn't represent the majority, um, you know, or the people that that like this room, everybody in this room knows that probably not all bison is always grass fed, but our customers at HopDotty did, didn't know that. So we, when we put grass fed regenerative bison on the menu, it almost, we were almost calling ourselves out before because people were like, oh, so it wasn't grass fed before. And we're like, well, yeah, it wasn't, sorry. Um, but uh, so there's a huge, there's a huge culinary um, kind of, flavor, texture, appearance, profile difference. I think that there's, um, there's so many notable, um, differences to the product. It's almost, they're almost unmatchable. And one kind of looks like a, a mealy paste and the other looks like, you know, meat, meat that you'd want to eat. That's, that's badass. I mean, that, that takes a leap of faith and some courage for sure. So very inspirational. Uh, Robbie is, Regenerative agriculture scalable. This is kind of what I started this whole panel off with is the critic from the the criticism from the incumbent system saying you guys can't feed a growing population. This is impossible. This is a cool idea, but we need to give it up and get serious, double down on where we're at. So is it scalable? Can we feed people? What's going on there? Yeah, I mean, I think absolutely it's scalable. And if you think about the the, the key tenets and concepts of regenerative agriculture that we've been discussing, it is, you know, shifting practices to farm and steward lands in the image and the lessons and the wisdom of nature. So, you know, I'd say regenerative agriculture is only as scalable as there is land uh, and people to manage that land on the globe. Right. So it's as scalable as we need it to be. Um and I could go into all the reasons why, but I think we're seeing time and again um, an example after example of how different regions, different proteins, different cultures, again, diversity of ways to come at it and solve challenges unique to various contexts. Um, we continue to not only see that it's scalable, but we can exceed our expectations on the potential for it. Can I add to that? Absolutely. When you talk about can we produce enough food to feed the population, I like to point to the pioneers like White Oak Pastures and Gabe Brown and, and these other folks that are integrating multiple levels of livestock production on the same acre. And the pounds of food produced per acre are greater than what you can produce in a feed yard. I mean, how can you say that we can't feed a population when you have 
guys like this that show us that we can produce more food than we ever imagined on an acre. Very cool. Robbie, um, or any of you guys, I don't know if y'all are educated or researched enough to know what is the, what's the goal? How many acres of land globally do we need to transition to a regenerative model to have positive global effects that reverse some of the legacy issues that we're challenging our civilization with today? What number should we be shooting for? All of it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm going to have to go to my memory here. So you should fact check the heck out of this. Um, I think there's a there there are there's some data out there that says if we could <clears throat> return um, one part per thousand. Uh, of organic matter into our global pr production soils, we could offset all of the annual emissions of, of society, man-made emissions. I think it's something like 4.2 megatons or something just absolutely astronomical with this tiny fractional percentage of improvement in organic matter. Um, and what we're seeing in ranches time and again is it's not, the potential isn't some tiny fractional proportion. It's hundreds of percents over years. I mean, we worked with White Oak Pastures on a study. Taylor, you shared some information about Rome yesterday. White Oak Pastures showed something like 300% improvement in organic matter over a five-year period. So, I mean, there's empirical data. There's just as import importantly, lots of anecdotal data. It's just, there's an overwhelming amount of, of, of science and reality that's, that, that shows the, the power and potential there. Matt, with, with Hopdotty, I don't know if it was a hard sell to get the, the higher-ups to understand the value of sourcing regenerative protein, but, you know, certainly there was an added cost there. Um, and you guys accepted that added cost. H how has that worked out? How do you guys work through that cost in your overall sourcing strategy? And, and how do you guys kind of make it work? Um, yeah, I mean, this is a conversation that we have, um, all the time because similar to, I would never assert that hop Dottie is this as savvy as the Turner organizations, but, uh, same, kind of the same thing. Our business is only as sustainable, um, as the business can be in business. And so, um, the, the decision to, uh, kind of move to more expensive products, um, was really easy from, uh, from a philosophical standpoint, a little bit harder from an economic standpoint, but ultimately, um, we kind of operate under the pretense that people will pay for quality if they can understand it. And the second they can't understand the quality, they'll start questioning the price. And that's like a mantra that we just have all the time. Um, and that's kind of the filter that we put a lot of our, um, our decisions through. Uh, and to us, it was really clear. And obviously there's no, like, there's no accounting magic or, you know, magic bullet here. Um, you know, we have a price per pound that we pay. And when that price goes up, we're going to pass as much through, um, to the guests as we think that the markets can sustain and can understand and that the quality can stand up to it. And in every cutting that we had in, in all of our focus groups, um, it was resoundingly just a, a, a wider um, like appeal and a broader appeal and wider accepted product. Um, so, you know, we pass some of that through to the guest. Um, we absorb some of that, um, but we're able to make that up in other places like with, you know, labor or different in-store economics that um, are sacrifices and challenges that we're kind of willing to, um, to you know, wade through uh, in the name of making sure that we're doing something that we're really proud of. Um, and we're kind of fulfilling our core values as a company. 
So there's a lot of uh, restauranteurs out here, producers out here, consumers out here. Um, how does a producer, you know, obviously like Hop Dottie is in the big leagues, but how would you recommend someone producing uh, a local restaurant to start out with and consider sourcing from them more locally, more regeneratively versus maybe what that restaurant is accustomed to, which is that industrial commodity system? Um. So you're saying if, if somebody was if somebody was growing something locally and they were more and more regeneratively, how would they get into a restaurant? Like, yeah, how do they approach you? And they're like, shit, oh, okay. man, you gotta you gotta get that off the menu and put mine on the menu. Like, so many people are, are wanting to know that okay. secret sauce. Um, I think that um, any restaurant is obviously looking for, and if you just kind of like peel back the curtain, like any restaurant designing a menu or um, kind of outlining a strategy for their food program is always looking for differentiation. So what about it? What about it makes it different? Is it the, is this taste? Is it the smell? Is it the appearance? Um, and then kind of the secondary kind of level down is like, what's the story behind it? So how can, how can we, how can we tell this story? Um, how sticky is it? How salient is it? How many guests is that going to resonate with? Um, and, and we kind of, we kind of span this, uh, the spectrum and things that we, we try and we're, sometimes we're really surprised by things that, that don't go over as well. And sometimes we're, um, like I'm shocked at how well other things go over. Um, you know, I, I frankly was a little bit surprised at the sales uptick that we saw when we took price up on uh, our bison product. Um, I thought that doing something like switching from Topo Chico on our menu over to like a, a local um, like Rambler water that gave back to Texas Parks and Wildlife. And we did a big rollout day. And I thought that would resonate with our guests more. And our guests just didn't really care about that. Like I kind of felt flat. Um, and maybe it was because we were charging the same amount. I don't, I don't know, but, um, if you're going to, so if you're going to approach restaurant people, I mean, I think the story is really important because I think that's what any, any marketer, any C-suite team, um, they're going to want to know why, why this, why now, why the price increase. Um, and then everybody's, and then the, probably the less sexy part of the story is, is how robust is the supply chain? Are we going to have outages? Can we expect there to be a constant, um, you know, are we gonna have to go to our guests and say, Hey, we, we really celebrated this rollout, but Oh, by the way, it's not in today, but you're going to pay the same price. Um, cause I think that's something that doesn't get talked about a lot of times. Like if I charge a dollar more for a vital farms egg and vital farms calls me tomorrow and they're like, sorry, we don't have eggs today. I don't take my price down on the menu that day. Um, which is kind of a rough place to put a guest in. And it's an even more, uh, kind of precarious place as a, as a business owner. Cool. Uh, Robbie, um, we talk about verifying or validating a supply chain. I know there's different metrics to use, uh, different organizations kind of competing for that, uh, you know, consumer facing verification or seal. Um, how does force of nature work through sourcing and, and how do you guys, um, determine if something is regenerative, if you consider it regenerative? You know, I, I think it's probably just a, a scaled. I think, we, we, you know, kind of what Anthony was talking about this morning, how we're, we, you look down at where you are and you look around and, and, and you try to figure out how to do the best that you can do within your um, your community and your, your potential and your opportunity. I think I think in time we will see a, a third and, there, and there's folks here from different organizations that are representing um, standards. I believe there's folks here from Rodale, folks here from Savory. Each of them has a, a third party verification protocol to certify that a product is regenerative and they're coming at it from different angles. And um, again, in the vein of diversity, you know, I think they're both solving 
key challenges, but not, not, no, neither of them would say that they are perfect. And I'd say that we are, we're not perfect either. And in the absence of a singular ubiquitous standard, standard that's widely accepted and, and most importantly understood, um, you know, for us, again, this is where I say there's, there's, I would draw relations with, with Anthony. We don't, we don't, um, supply or we don't source from any ranch or operation that we haven't actually been to. It's too easy to be told what you want to hear, uh, and be misled. And so we go to actually do that validation. And I think even the most important part, even of those visits, surely the practices are important, but I'd say the most important part we saw on a slide yesterday, it's validating the mindset. Right. Is, is, is this an organization operation, a family that's looking to race towards some minimum bar and dig their heels in and hunker down? Or do they recognize that this is a journey and it's a journey of continuous improvement? And there really is no destination other than continuous progress and improvement and raising the bar. And so, you know, I think how that, again, translates to, to all of us individually, we all have that potential. We can all look to and understand whether it's harvesting our own food on the land and in and, and the Rocky Mountains with a large elk or you know, supporting a local farm that's practicing regenerative and doing good things or supporting an organization like Force of Nature, who's trying to work with independent ranches, regionalize that over the, 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 the a country in a large geography, connect that connection, that validation, that formation of a relationship and pursuit and journey um, is, is, is critical to getting what it is that you're looking for. And in this case, regenerative uh, proteins. You know, there, you touched on a lot of good points. There's so many different variables that consumers are looking for that resonate with their spirit, their value, their souls, whether it's wildlife habitat, that's a benefit of, of sourcing regeneratively. You could monitor and measure that. You could do rainfall infiltration, biodiversity, you know, dot, dot, dot. But what seems to be kind of the sexiest buzzword that people are running with the hardest with regeneration is carbon sequestration. And I know, uh, We've been involved with some life cycle assessment studies that look at that, look at um, specifically holistically properly managed animals. Can you just touch on what a life cycle assessment is and what the science has shown? Yeah, so so a life cycle assessment is kind of considered to be a, a cradle to grave analysis. Um, and so you look at you, you attempt to look at end to end in this place, the conversations around carbon um, and emissions or carbon equivalent emissions, I should say, because you have you know, carbon dioxide, methane, et cetera, but they're all carbon equivalents. Um, and they investigate each, each aspect and then they come out with some, you know, X many pounds of emissions per pounds of product produced. And so um, we were fortunate enough to, um, in, 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 our, in our past workings together, work with uh, White Oak Pastures and, and Will is here um, to help fund a life cycle assessment on their farm in Georgia. Um, and what that showed was, um, for, for, for context, I think the most industrialized, most vilified, uh, approach to, to ruminant animal or beef agriculture produces something upwards of 20 pounds of emissions per pound of product produced. Um, and then, you know, on down into, to, to pork and poultry and then, uh, conventional row crop agriculture. And I think corn and soy are somewhere in the, uh, plus five to eight pounds of emissions per pound of product produced. In other words, meaning you're emitting more pounds of CO2 than, than, than you're producing in, in production. And, and then um, we actually worked with this laboratory called Qantas Laboratories. It's the exact same lab that performed the life cycle assessment for uh, impossible foods, for the impossible burger, right? This, this wonderful solution that's gonna save everything. And I believe it showed uh, that they, they emit three and a half pounds of carbon equivalents for every pound of 
even worse looking pink sludge that they produce. Um, and I think beyond is the same. I think it's four pounds released for every pound produced. And at white Oak pastures, um, practicing regenerative agriculture. And, and, it, and we looked at things other than carbon, but on the carbon conversation alone, um, it showed that they were sequestering three and a half pounds of carbon and carbon equivalents for every pound of beef that they produced. And so the easiest way of, it's like, do you turn up the air conditioning or turn down the air conditioning, right? The easiest way to look at that is to offset the emissions of one of these plant-based fraud burgers you have to consume a burger from a regenerative beef operation like white oak pastures uh, in order to sequester that carbon back down and put it into the soil where it belongs. I think it's I think it's important to note that that's a really uh, that's a really uh, widely discussed kind of metric that I think is really understandable. We came out of a uh, we came out of a board meeting two weeks ago with our private equity firm that's in uh, New Canaan, and they were basically asking us about the big push that we're having for regenerative. Um, and they were kind of having a hard time wrapping their head around it probably because I'm a hard, not very good at explaining it. Um, and basically what we ended up kind of describing to them is we were like, well, you know, this, this beef, you know, it can be carbon neutral or carbon negative. So like, could you imagine if we had like a burger on the menu and we, um, we branded it and labeled it like a, this is a whole carbon negative burger. Like if we took everything on the burger and made and made it so it was actually sequestering atmospheric. And they were like, oh, OK, they got the, their heads kind of wrapped around that. And like that was something that like triggered to them. So like if you're a producer and you're like doing these tests or you're talking about this, I think that's something that like that that's a easy, easily understandable kind of data point. And it showed that they had more nutrition in the soil. They're infiltrating water at a more effective rate. You know, all the things that we've been talking about, right? Really, really, really incredible stuff. Yeah. If you guys aren't blown away by that, you might need to get, you know, go to the doctor and make sure you're still alive. That's incredible. That's something we don't talk about enough. And literally there's different ways to conceptualize this. The way I think about that is like, you may be hanging out with your friends, eating a burger from Hopdotty and combating climate change, right? Cycling that carbon into the soil doing all this amazing stuff and it's empirical. There's data behind it. So that's very cool. Bob, what is your greatest hope for the restoration, the legacy of the North American bison and in future generations that will come consumers after today? I got to fill you in. So we got the questions ahead of time and I didn't study, but I can tell you that wasn't one of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, my, my greatest hope for, for bison and the future of bison, um, so I'm torn. I'm going to be real with you guys. I love bison. I love everything there is about bison. I love them as a wild species. I love them as a, a domestic species. But I also think that sometimes we can put them on a pedestal that's unreal. When we think about bison in the context of regenerative agriculture, in the context of restoring natural cycles, in the context of, of uh, feeding, feeding the world, they're only, they're a part. They're not the whole. So I think it's important that we have bison and we have bison agriculture and we have bison in places like parks, and I hope that more people raise them. But I'm not going to sit up here and tell you that it should be the only animal we raise. They're not a magical being. They're just another part of the system. And I think they're an important part of the system, especially where they're within context. Um, 
the Northern Great Plains wouldn't be the Northern Great Plains without them. And I hope the the Great Plains in general, not just the Northern, but you know, I hope they're always around and I, and I hope they become normalized as just an, another awesome critter to have as part of our life. Matt, um, we've been talking a lot about the power of the consumer driving change. What can all these beautiful people out here do? Um, when they walk into a restaurant and they're poking around, they're asking for the chef or asking hard questions about what kind of oils are you guys using to put your fries in or where are you sourcing your burgers? Do Does that get up the chain? Do people pay attention to that? Is that a cue that creates action and, and creates different sourcing? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, I think that any, uh, any thriving restaurant company um, – their, their secret sauce and how they evolve and how they grow um, and how they expand, how they scale is really how closely in tune uh, they are with their guests. Um, you know, some, uh, some groups monitor credit card data and then overlay that with sociographic data and try to understand their, their trends. Some people are big into uh, max div studies where you'll take uh, consumers or you'll take your, your client base and you'll ask them what's more important, this or this, and you'll do these long drawn out studies. Some people have focus groups and some people go to exhaustive research to really make sure that like if one person in one store emails in and says like, Hey, I'd really like my avocado sliced instead of mashed. Um, we, it, it gets up the flagpole. Um, we do all of those things. Um, and I, I think that's honestly what has probably led to our success is I think that we're really, really in tune with our guests and what they want. Um, I think we take everything seriously. Uh, two days ago, I had an email from our CEO because one person on Instagram one time at our triangle location said, I think the portion sizes have gotten too small. And I had uh, I had like three phone calls with our CEO about it because one person said, I think this burger's gotten a little small and he immediately wanted another half an ounce bigger in our bun and he wanted two ounces more in the burger and he wanted a tasting the next week. So, I mean, I think that everybody's voice matters. Yeah. Don't, don't undersell yourself and I'll even riff on this. It just reminded me of something, but you know, my wife and I, we sold a company called Epic to a company called General Mills. You guys probably heard of them. And one day a consumer complained personal complaint about me and my wife we're not going to go into what that was about but that got run all the way up to the ceo of a multi-billion dollar multinational company what the dickens so people are listening you guys be annoying maybe not to matt but ask these hard-ass questions okay uh we are going to hand this over to you beautiful people let's continue this conversation please in the front katie can you facilitate that okay hi Um, I don't really have a question. I just kind of have more of a comment, maybe a call to action, but, um, you were saying there's this thought about, we can't do this and feed the world. And I think we can, I think that there's so much misuse of our food. Um, there is so much waste and I would love, I hope we're doing this again next year. Um, and I feel like there can be some people on the panel that can talk about, you know, food waste and particularly restaurant food waste. I work at a restaurant. It's disgusting how much food we throw away. Um, I live in California and there's new initiatives. I get nervous when I talk in front of a lot of people, sorry. <laughs> um, but there's you know new initiatives that are going forward and you know that restaurants are gonna have to compost 
And I would just like to bring that into the conversation. And, you know, there's this talk about what can we do as just these, you know, small people and people who aren't farmers and, you know, aren't doing really big things. But in our own communities, we can bring about this conversation about how are you respecting or disrespecting your food? Are you, you know, consuming it um, wisely and what's happening in your restaurants and, you know. I think, I think people can also help with, um, with their votes in their local municipalities. I know in Austin, it's, uh, in Austin alone, um, it's $450,000, uh, incremental expense for us to compost, um, just because of, um, kind of how it's run in some of our other markets. It's not, but that's, that's another business expense that we absorb. And then we, but we don't necessarily talk about it. We don't say, Hey, we're, you know, your burgers are an extra $2 and your truffle fries are an extra dollar because we compost in this market. It's just something that we absorb. So I think that back to like what people can do is like, if you want to take a holistic approach to making a difference and food waste is in the conversation, then, I mean, there's ways you can also help the business as well by looking at those things. It's a great addition to that, to that question. And, and food waste is definitely a great part of that conversation. One thing, when you asked me that earlier, what I should have said was, Yes, we can feed a growing population with regenerative agriculture, and it's the only way that we can do it because we absolutely cannot feed a growing population if we maintain the status quo. That is the one certainty. Let's do it, CJ. What can you I, got? Can I add one thing? I think it, it you know, it goes beyond the waste at the end, but up at the beginning of the process, you know, as consumers, we've, we've got picky in what we eat. And we're not doing a good job of utilizing whole carcasses. Um, there, there's so much opportunity to expand the total number of calories got per individual animal if we would expand our, our dietary preferences. And I'm not talking about eating the guts and whatnot, but, um, you know, we can't all eat a ribeye every day. There's just not enough ribeyes on an animal. And so expanding what we eat and how often we eat certain parts so we get better carcass utilization, we feed more people on one animal than we do now. Okay, CJ, what you got? Okay, Bob, I have a question for you. So I grew up in a very conventional farming and ranching, lots of feedlots. Um, so if you were going to recommend a source to like maybe hand to a conventional rancher, what would be a great like gateway for them to for awareness? Yeah, that's a. I think so. In my mind, one of the the big reason that most people are conventional or stay conventional, it's a paradigm that they're in, right? I I, I firmly believe that every land owner, every land manager believes they're doing the best for their land and their animals with the actions that they're taking. And, and they're confined within that paradigm. And so I hesitate to say, you know, this one book will change your mind because it depends what paradigm you're in. So I think the best gateway drug to regenerative agriculture is seeing somebody doing it within the same context that you're doing it. Finding that neighbor, that peer, that's made it work on their place and seeing that that's the only way to get the aha moment. Reading pages on a book isn't going to change your mind. But if you are going to give them a book, 
I would say Gabe Brown, dirt to soil. I'm going to manifest that Gabe Brown will be here next year. It's going to happen. So, all right. Who is next, my friends? You want me to pick? Okay, this namaste looking guy in the front. Appreciate that compliment. Uh, first of all, thank you all for, uh, you know, spearheading this space and, uh, you know, creating an environment like this for all of us to get together. Uh, one question I did have was, so in my clinic, I talked a lot about, to my patients about the importance of food, right? And especially like where your food is coming from, but it's become so convoluted and confusing with branding things, right? Whether it's uh, grass-fed, organic, pasture-raised, regenerative. And so I, you know, even for me, like who's in this space, sometimes it can get confusing. And then when I have patients come in and they talk to me, they're super confused. So I was curious, how do you guys navigate that space and, and getting it out there and what those really mean? And how do you communicate that to your uh, consumers? And how do you suggest we communicate to people in our communities and uh, letting them know what the difference is? Yeah, I think, you know, <laughs> there's so, so much wisdom from, from Will in the back. I remember one time we were talking about something similar and we were going to his ranch and he just said, you know, as a, as a farmer and a producer, we pay so much money to have all of our Girl Scout badges going all the way down our shirt with all of the things. And it's, and it's largely a pay to play game, right? And many of those get reduced to the point where they, they are, they're, they're practically meaningless, right? Anybody can achieve any quote unquote standard or, 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 or seal. And, um, and, and, and unfortunately that then also raises the price, makes it harder to produce, makes it, makes it more expensive to buy. And, you know, really what we're trying to do is find, what is the most simple? What is, what is, what's at the essence of all of it? And I think um, we've seen that evolution occur and, and, and we've seen, um, you know, kind of disingenuous tactics like assigning natural to everything. And then we've seen organizations come out with, um, with, with you know, some of the other uh, badges that I was talking about. I, I, I truly think um, the gold standard uh, is, is regenerative, right? And it's not just that it's always about something new and shiny. It's it's that how can we encompass as, as much of our prior learnings and our next step forward and our next evolution and in and, and, and the, and the name of progress. And I think, you know, you, it's hard to truly be regenerative and it's in an animal based system. For example, it's hard to truly be re regenerative if you aren't treating animals well, if you aren't celebrating pastoral systems, if they aren't eating diets that are evolutionarily consistent and they involve to eat and expressing behaviors that they express to behave. And so it starts to become very inclusive of so many other things. I think one of the challenges is regenerative is really complex, so it's hard to explain, um, but, it, but it truly is a destination uh, for so many people. And I think the fear that I have is that that too will become greenwashed and that too will become reduced to something that is only a shell of what it intended to be. And, and, and grass-fed is a wonderful example of that, right? Because you can be grass-fed and a CAFO you know, either, either finishing on alfalfa cubes or even finishing on corn and grain, it can be grass fed because it had grass at some point in its life. Um, and so, you know, there's all sorts of creative ways to, to take advantage of and manipulate the, the, how things are represented. Right. So I, I still think, unfortunately, as much as we like to reduce things down, we still can't reduce it down to a seal, but we can bring it, we can take it down to a story, the story of food, the story of the community, the story of the role that that food played in, in supporting a system is in addition to the role it plays in nourishing you and so on and so forth. And so we just can't allow for us to be that hyper simple veiled approach to everything. We have to open up a little bit more. 
can we hand the mic to my my man Mike Lorenz? We're here. I think I I oh, think I got there first. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Um, I'll pass it to, to you, Mike, afterwards. So I'm wondering, um, just to understand a little bit more, I talked to some folks about this yesterday. So we are the minority, right? We can afford to come to an event like this. We can afford to have these conversations. We can afford to buy different things. And I think I appreciated the question came up in the last panel, but I think this panel is maybe a little bit more suited to be able to answer it. But I'd, I love, Bob, what you said about, you know, Farmers need to have their neighbors telling them how to do these things so that they can find trust in that transmission of information. And so I'd love to hear more about what y'all are doing or what y'all think we all can be doing to make sure that we're people that look like me, people that can afford to come to this type of event are having this conversation more frequently and are getting the information and, and also the capital to be able to start doing some of these shifts. We talk about the price of a Snickers bar in this question. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> so so much there. But I think step one is exactly what you already what you already led on, right? Talking about it and creating awareness, um, letting people make choice, right? I think the the latest data says something like eighty percent of consumers in the United States at least bought an organic item last year, right? So what that means is even people that aren't in the same position as the folks under this tent. Um, economically or financially speaking, they still desire and are willing to pay a premium for something um, that's a little bit better. And then, I, and then I think the 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 idea that that are that that this meat that what we're talking about and, and regenerative proteins is expensive is is misleading. It, it is more costly, more expensive, I should say, than some of the commodity and conventional alternatives. But I'd say it's less costly. The true cost of that food is in the package. It's it is it is weighted and accounted for versus a commodity system where the prices you know you have you have farm bill you have ag bill you have the environmental tolls you have the tolls on human health um, there's so many externalities that aren't even considered in the cost of of that food um, and then you have the, the the mirage effect as I like to think of it as we perceive because you see a regenerative protein you know at at, at seven or eight dollars next to a conventional one at you know, at five or six dollars, like, oh my God, this is this is so expensive. It's not expensive. When was the last time somebody here went to Chick-fil-A? Their their value meals are like 15 bucks, right? We talked about the price of almonds and wine and olive oil and all these other things. People have no reservations paying a premium for, sure. But what about Hershey's? Something like 65 cents an ounce. It's more expensive than regenerative beef. And you can actually live on it and nourish yourself and your body with. And so I think part of it is just shifting our perspective a little bit, getting out of the paradigm that we're all stuck in and recognizing that what is expensive is putting crap in our bodies, poisoning our lands and, and perpetuating suffering, right? What is cost effective is investing in yourself and investing in thinking freely and thinking outside of the box and recognizing that there's there, there's more to it than what you see reflected on the sticker price on the shelf. The difference between the people in this room and uh, people that aren't that might not be here is probably less about socioeconomic status. It's more about priorities and things that are important to them. Interesting. Love it. Okay. Mike. So, okay, oh, add, let me add one thing to that. So. Taylor had asked me a, a while ago what kind of 
my long-term vision and goal for our land and our bison is. And uh, this conference has been so amazing. It's inspired me. It's done exactly what it's supposed to. I'm tingling. But I heard some things that made me change the wording of my goal. And I think it ties into this question too. So um, my goal for, for the health of my landscape and the healthfulness of our product, my goal is for it to become crack cocaine to each and every one of you. I want it, and not in a greedy way. I want when a consumer takes a bite of, of bison meat raised in such a complete and natural and healthy environment, so full of that light energy, I want them to grunt like a bison and tear around like a tiger. And I want them to feel that 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 is the wealth, they're, they're creating wealth in themselves. So they didn't spend wealth to take in that food. They're taking in that food to create wealth in themselves. That's what I want someday, for people to want regeneratively raised food because they have to have it, because it's a drug that makes them feel so amazing about themselves and the world they live in. And then, All right, I have uh, two questions. One to Bob first. <clears throat> um, could you just remind the group how small a protein bison is, you know, in the world? I mean, and, and just the long game that we have to play. Like, if we'd start holding back every heifer to get the herd up, first of all, that would devastate the economics of trying to grow these herds if we had to hold back every heifer to grow it. And how long it's going to take to actually make bison a bigger presence in the general protein market could you yeah talk so about that for a minute isn't more uh isn't more head of cattle d down a week than bison a year oh it's worse than that yeah so you know we slaughter the bison industry slaughters about sixty thousand head a year it's a pretty big number right well to put that into perspective uh the beef industry slaughters that before 10 a.m on monday morning of the first day of work so and Think about that. Compared to beef, bison is this minuscule little part. So I, I, I can't do that math that quickly in my head, but if we were to hold back every heifer, it takes three years for a bison to become reproductive and replace herself for the first time. And then a lot of them don't replace themselves and whatnot. I, you know, if we were to hold back every heifer to get to the size of the national beef herd, we're still talking decades. So, um, it's a small, it's a small part of the protein game. And that's, that's my answer earlier sucked about what I saw for bison. It was a downer, but it, it's a reality. It, it is a small part and, and we want it to be a bigger part. Don't get me wrong. I want every person in the world to get to experience the amazingness that is bison. But right now we don't even produce enough bison that everybody could have a bite, let alone a whole birder. I think I'm going to, I have, I just, I'm chomping at the bit. I can't stand it. Mike, I'm going to let you ask your second question, I swear. But um, my, my vision for, and hope for the bison industry and, and for the people in this room again, we, we, we talked about it. We kind of glossed over it, right? We shifted the bison industry. That happened. We did that. That's, we were told that was impossible. You can't change an industry, but we did it. It's a smaller industry, 
but it's a beacon of hope. It's an example. It proves that through the force, through the energy, through the, the intention that we all have, that it can be done. And so my hope and my vision for the bison industry is surely have more of these iconic romantic animals gracing the land, doing the, giving their gift to, to, to the planet that they give, but it, it's to serve as an example and, and, that, and that beacon of hope so that we can take it to an even bigger, to an even larger industry and replicate that. And we can change that industry and we can lift our standards and, and be proud of what we've done. And, and before Mike asks his second question, I just want everybody to understand who's asking this question. And he probably wouldn't appreciate me doing it, but Mike Lorenz is a, is a, is a processor. He slaughters animals and further processes them and, and he works with us. And the reason that we sought him out to do that for us is because this guy named Michael Pollan wrote a book called The Omnivore's Dilemma and highlighted the best in class example he could find of a, a slaughter facility doing it in a way that was supporting the, the community um, and, and practicing welfare for the animals. And he called it the glass abattoir. And uh, that's Mike Lorenz's facility. So this is an incredible person. I don't know what he's going to throw at me, but I have a, a hell of a lot of respect for this man. I, I appreciate that shout out. Thank you. Um, and, you know, we're all on the journey together and it's been a wild ride the last 20 years watching people like Will Harris come up and Thousand Hills Cattle Company. And I, I, I feel part of the bison industry. We, we probably slaughter close to uh, 150, 200 a week. So I like to joke, we are a Tyson, a bison to be <laughs> equivalent of beef. We'd have to kill 5,000 head a day just to give you a, a snippet of the difference in market size. So I just really wanted uh, Bob to do that. But then as a, as a small company that's been perpetually under, underfunded and, and challenged with capital, and that's where I spend a big part of my time thinking about capital, to Matt, what are you doing to educate your investors? Are you able to work at a 33% food cost, even buying more expensive food? Or do you move your percentage up? Or do you stay 33 and convince your investors that you're using that money for composting and in other but what because you know i hear it all the time from people trying to do it and it's like we pay 33 you know i bought 40 percent food costs my banker keeps telling me i suck at being a restaurateur because i'm buying better food you know how are you guys handling that pressure i, I genuinely don't mean this to be like a mic drop moment but we run 26s um so we won't even in our like they won't even look at us unless we're sub 30 um, and the way we look at everything really is a blended prime cost between um, cost of goods and labor holistically. So we can have our labor be a little bit higher if our cost of goods is lower or vice versa. Um, so that's kind of how we look at it in our industry. The main metrics that we're working at is, you know, cash on cash return and store level at EBITDA. And the way that we mitigate a lot of these things, like we bring on more expensive products is we're not cheap and we're, and we're not apologetic for it. And we charge what we charge and we really try to put... Uh, the dollars where they, we, we try to put the dollars where people can taste the difference. We can talk about the difference. We can market the difference. Um, and then obviously like we heavily monitor our top 15 biggest moving items, right? Like if I move 4 million pounds of ground beef, I don't really care about, you know, seafold paper towels in the bathroom that I might move six cases of. So everything we do is just focused around our top 15 movers. And we, and we really kind of hammer those. Um, so we'll give up a little bit of, of margin, gross margin. We do the same thing on our beef, you know, a commodity beef you can buy for two twenty seven in the store. I'm paying, I'm paying three twenty eight right now for a heritage Italian breed, um, and, I, and I'm a big producer, a big purveyor. I mean, I buy three, I buy three million pounds from a company that makes ten million a year, you know, ten million pounds a year. 
Um, so we'll give up some and, and, uh, we'll, we'll, but we'll invest in stuff like that we think makes a difference like beef and protein and bison. Cool. Okay. That is all the time we have. Sorry. Those were great questions. Let's give this amazing panel a loud round of applause. And that's a freaking wrap. Listening to this live recording was super inspiring to me, but more importantly, filled my heart with gratitude that our individual life journeys have crossed through this mutual appreciation of thriving ecosystems, through majestic animals and through nourishing food, a friendship was formed and positive change accelerated. This is a reminder that the people who you surround yourself with in this precious journey that we call life are the same people who will either lift you up or hold you down. And Matt, Robbie, Bob, you guys lift me and countless others to the fucking stratosphere. Tickets for the 2023 What Good Shall I Do event. This is the conference in which this live recording was taken last year. Well, they're on sale. The event is April 21st through the 23rd. It's at Rome Ranch. Head over to forceofnature.com today and grab yours before they sell out because they always sell out. I say this with the utmost truth that this event is full of some of the most kind, beautiful, thoughtful, and passionate people on the planet. So aside from coming to listen to the amazing speakers, the amazing panels, the field demonstrations, the wood-fired chef-inspired food. You should attend this event to be a part of a greater community that will lift you up, elevate your own journey, and launch you to the freaking moon. Okay, before we head out, I love reading an actual factual review from our Apple podcast platform. This one is is from Adam Puscorius. He says, five stars. Great podcast. I love the storytelling and the knowledge these guys share on soil health. Episode five was great. Also, have really enjoyed all the guests so far on this podcast. Looking forward to the next one. Well, thank you, Adam. You are my brother, and I'm glad you enjoy this podcast as much as I enjoy creating it. It's just such an honor and such a kind act for anyone to take time out of their day and leave a review, say something nice. Um, so thank you. Really appreciate everyone out there supporting this. If you enjoy listening to it, um, share this within your community or, you know, leave a review yourself and that will make my heart sing. That's it. I am about to head out and pick prickly pear cactus from a field for four hours. So I hope you guys have a beautiful week and until next time, make sure you're lifting someone up.